Second Corinthians chapter 11, we'll begin in verse, reading in verse 5 to the end of the chapter as we continue our study in Paul's defense of first his message and now um, his ministry. Second Corinthians chapter 11, beginning verse 5 through verse 33, I'll bring out the New King James Version. God's Word declares, for I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most imminent apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge, we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted, because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? Oh, God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame, I say that we were too weak for all that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three nights I was shipwrecked. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Eretus the king was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison. 
desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Well, we move forward this morning in our study here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And as I said earlier, we saw for a couple of weeks the message that Paul wanted to defend. And for the Corinthian church, uh, they had laid themselves open for uh, exposure to false Jesus, to a false spirit, to a false gospel. And this was of grave concern for him, obviously. And so he took measures to substantiate before them the message. Who is this Jesus? And he's going to refer to this several times. He already has extensively. Um, we have some other writings as well. If you've been doing your Bible reading, you've... Uh, by the way, we're down to December, so we're running out of Bible to read because we're running out of year to read it. Um, we've just gotten done with 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And there, repeatedly, John keeps confronting his readers with, if they deny that Jesus came in the flesh, if they deny Jesus came in the flesh, they are false teachers. If they deny that he is God, they are false teachers. And so we have a very uh, carefully defined understanding of the deity and humanity of Christ, that both are absolutely necessary, we also have the gospel defined, not a workless grace, but a grace that leads to works. That we receive the grace of God by faith, that faith is then expressed by works of righteousness, and not the other way around. And so we are called upon uh, to not add to the gospel for our trust and our full allegiance is to the work of Jesus Christ, not to our own efforts or merits. And yet we seek to serve him with our energies as much as can be possible this side of glory. And then, of course, the false spirit that many in our day are espousing. A spirit that contradicts so much scripture cannot be of God. That we have, when we have to abuse passage after passage to experience the Holy Spirit, we must conclude that what we are experiencing is not the Holy Spirit of God, for He cannot contradict Himself. And so we must conclude that these that are teaching in churches, and we're not. Paul wasn't talking about out there in the temple to Apollo, the temple to Diana. Or in the synagogues, he's talking about in the churches, that we look for these errors. And we find them abundantly present in our day. And so he calls upon us to not put up with, not tolerate whatsoever within our midst, a different Jesus, a different spirit, or a different gospel. Very powerful declaration by Paul. He now has to take the next step, which, if there is a troubling passage of Scripture in Paul's writing, um, and I know a lot of people think it's some of the writings of Romans and some of the doctrinal issues that people have made 
frequent. Uh, I think those are pretty clear and forthright. If there's a truly troubling scripture of Paul's authorship, it is the following verses that we've already read this morning and reaching into chapter 12. Troubling, not uh, necessarily in their accuracy, for Paul is not embellishing his testimony at all. That is not what's troubling. Uh, What is troubling is that it has to be written at all. And that troubled not only us as modern readers, it should trouble us, but it also troubled Paul. And repeatedly we are going to be confronted with a phrase that makes us understand that he is reticent to enter into this kind of argumentation. He doesn't like it, and he is flabbergasted that it is even necessary to the point that his favorite description is what fools we are. And before we possibly get into joining Paul's study, we better, in this foolish study, we need to go to the Lord in prayer. Let's do so now. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for your truth. That while many around us taint it, detract from it, add to it, mar it, and thus seek to destroy its efficaciousness for the salvation of men. Lord, our prayers are your spirit, the Holy Spirit. The true Spirit of God might direct our time today that what is said and spoken might be in accordance with your word of truth that it might be received by humble hearts, prepared to hear a message that the world might cast off, that our old man may have sneered at. The Lord, you have put in us a new man. Give us new ears to hear. That we might respond by faith, believing your word for what it says. That we might be admonished by its principles and let it radically transform our lives. Lord, we thank you for men like Paul, used of you to communicate your truth not only to one generation, but even to this very generation. Lord, we thank you for your willingness to use finite men to communicate infinite truth. And we marvel at it. At your condescension. At your power. We pray that that same spirit, that same work might be here this morning in our lives. For we are not worthy of your working in our hearts in our lives. So we call upon your grace, your mercy toward us. You might look down upon us with a pity, considering our miserable estate. And yet, Lord, we also pray for your power. You alone can affect these things in our lives and we are well aware of that. That we do not trust in our own intellect 
but in your truth, directed by your Spirit. We pray that we might have liberty to work in our midst, that if there be any sin in us that would inhibit that work, that you might bring it to mind, that we might repent of it, confess it, be cleansed of it, that you might have freedom. Do your will in us, even as it's done in heaven. Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we come to, as I said, a troubling passage of Scripture. We hear a man of God who has brought the gospel to an, to an entire city and really to an entire people group, the Gentiles, as he is called the apostle of the Gentiles, um, now uh, being so uh, attacked by some of the very ones whom he has led to Christ, that he felt it necessary for him to then lay forth his qualifications. To lay out a resume, if you will. And this is because of the nature of the Corinthians, not because of the interests of Paul. And we need to lay that groundwork very carefully. That Paul is here acknowledging and repeatedly communicating that the reason this is necessary is not because of his uh, ineffectuality. It's not because he just has, is losing it. Um, it's not because of his diminishment, but rather is because of the spirit of the Corinthians who are allowing themselves to be brought under the influence, and maybe even that's not a strong enough word, of these others. And we see this extensively uh, in the middle portion of our passage today. If we want to jump ahead to verses 16 through 21, um, why do you have to boast? Specifically verse 19, it says, For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. This is what the Corinthians were responding to. And Paul looked at their conditions like, you are listening to these people. You're listening to people who, whose end is evident, whose methodology is evident. They are ones who are taking advantage of you. They are ones who come in and bring you back into the bondage of the law, which is the Judaizers. They are the ones who bring you uh, here and devour you. That is, they just consume you for their own ends. They are not there to strengthen you, to build you up, to establish you, but rather to devour you. They are there to steal from you. They're going to take from you all that is their due. And they're going to exalt you and even strike you on the face. And these are the people you are putting up with, that you are actually giving audience to in your church. People who have no grace, no mercy, no long-suffering, none of the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. They obviously have interest in what you possess to make it their possession. Instead of giving to you what they possess, they want what you possess. They don't come to you with spiritual food to feed you with. They're coming to you 
seeking to exercise physical food out of you. They're not there to add, but to detract. And what they do add, if they claim to do so, is bondage. To use you up for Christ. And in all of this, the the Corinthians did so with an attitude that they were wise enough to let it happen. They claim wisdom in the midst of all of this. And I want to share with you that that has a lot to do with the church today. That we applaud ourselves for being tolerant of this great breadth of Christianity. That, yeah, these people over here, they're a little off on these things and kind of legalistic, and, yeah, they have their issues, um, but they're still our brethren, and we can have the wisdom to fellowship over there and to really engage them. And then you have these people over here, and they're totally experiential, and, uh, you know, they talk about the Spirit, and they use that name, Jesus, and, and we think that we are wise by being able to be encompassing of all of that. And the ecumenical movement of our age, which has really been only in the last 50 years of my lifespan, has really sought to say, listen, all that matters is Jesus. And by that, they mean just use the term. Don't define him. And they want this breadth. That if we're accepting of the fullness, and this is the word they use, the fullness of Christ, which is an abuse of scriptural term that's very precious, and you have this broad idea of what it means to be a believer, that that is wisdom, and those are the really in-tune Christians. These are the churches that you want to be a part of that understand this breath. And, and i got to share with you that at this point, in what I can see going on in, in ecclesiastical trends, that breath just keeps getting wider and wider. And now the Mormons believe they have a place in that breath. And many of our churches are condoning it. If not in their pulpit, certainly in their political views, based upon the last election. And Paul here makes it very clear that this isn't wisdom. The wisdom of God is necessarily defining. It is, it is limiting. It is a single path that's narrow. And few there be that find it. It is a single Jesus defined only by God's Word. And yet, we believe that the really wise ones are going to allow, put up with, tolerate, and bring this breadth in. And we're talking about giants, quote-unquote, at least from a human perspective, in Christianity. The Billy Grahams have gone so far as to say that we're all serving the same God. Because once you open up the broadness, now we can go well beyond even what is, quote-unquote, Christian. They're saying, well... All the Hindus are trying to get to God, too, and some of them serve Jesus. They add him to their billion gods. I don't know about you, but the God of the Old Testament that I read about is not very happy about that. In fact, I think he destroyed an entire nation for just that. Sent them into exile. 
slaughtered their men, women, and children, and unborn by the tens of thousands for just that reason. And so we come now, and Paul says, listen, you call this wisdom. And so because you think that that's wisdom, I'm going to have to come to you on your terms, because you haven't gone out of this cellar that is truly foolishness. To think that any and all spiritual endeavor must be applauded when it is obvious that there is spiritual endeavor, even using the same terms and titles that we're accustomed to, are error. And that there are those that will use that, or really abuse that, to their own ends. And you put up with this, and you call it wisdom. And so I'm going to have to come to you as a fool. I'm going to have to join you down here for just this brief time, since these are the things you cherish and think are high, you think these things are noble, let me go through them. And Paul does that. He's willing in the midst to acknowledge some of his limitations, which really focuses on one area, and that is his speech. He is not eloquent. He is not a trained orator. Um, he, uh, he knows it. He knows that, that in that comparison, he cannot hold his ground against these other very eloquent, smooth guys. And you need to be real careful, brethren. The smoother someone is, the more you have to go, what's he saying? The slicker he is, there's less truth to hold on to. So we have Paul coming in and he says, listen, first of all, I am not measuring myself against them. Let me first of all put myself in a different category than these other men who have come to you. I'm putting myself in the category of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Let me first and foremost say, in this comparison study between me and them, um, let me distinguish myself immediately by sharing with you that while they claim to be teachers and proponents of something, I am presenting myself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the sent ones of God, directly by the voice of Jesus Christ. That Jesus himself appeared to me, sent me on a mission that he himself communicated that these others don't have. And so he numbers himself among that original body of men, identified by the twelve, and then with Paul's addition, thirteen. Remember that Judas did get replaced in Acts. And so we find Paul here, first of all, distinctly categorizing himself totally different than these others. And then he begins to lay forth his other qualifications. And they um, are not what we'll see on any resumes today. And pastoral search committees aren't looking for this on their resumes. They just aren't. You put them on there and they'll just go, huh, something's wrong with this guy. He's a fanatic. You see, 
our churches today would look at resumes for pastoral positions the same way a Corinthian would. Paul lays these forward. He wants you to know that while he's not trained in speech, he's certainly well trained in knowledge. God has invested in him even before his salvation that he was well trained under some of the best in Judaism. And so for the Judaizers to come in and say they can represent Judaism, the Judaistic side of, of Christ better than him is foolishness. This man has been very well trained. Hence, later on, he's going to say in verse 22 and 23, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they seed of Abraham? So am I. He's going to go on and talk about his training under Gamaliel, that, that he had all of that training. He is immersed in that. And yet, out of that, God called him and then immersed him for another 12 to 14 years in the truth of Christ. He says, are these men really going to try to match me in knowledge? No. That's why they rely upon eloquence. That's why they rely upon a strong leadership hand that says it's going to be my way or the highway. They're going to rely upon these things, upon making you dependent upon them and not independent in Christ. They're going to take the Bible out of your hands and say, you can't understand it. Only us can get it. You can't. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, that was the status quo in Christianity. And so we find that Paul begins by saying, they're not equal to me in knowledge, and I can match them and do better than them because of my training that God has equipped over the period before my salvation in Judaism since my salvation in Christ and God be praised. But he doesn't dwell on this. This is probably the the one thing, well, that's what we would look for in a resume. Pastor, what's wrong with that? Um, Not a lot yet, but then we go right to the next verse where we find he's not going to But it is a one-way street. It is not appropriate, and it will always lend towards error, towards sin, for the pastor to make his financial demands of the church. Paul says, they want to claim to be like me, then I'm going to set the highest example of austerity. I'm going to set this example of financial accountability that is way beyond an audit. There's no audit necessary if you don't have a lot to be audited. Paul has laid it forth. He's been transparent in all things, including this area. And so he lays this out and says, listen, this is, this is the model. 
If they want to boast that they are comparable to me, let them model this kind of humility. That they will disregard that area of finances in ministry. Again, Paul has to take the next step in his presentation of defense of his ministry. And again, he reminds us how foolish it is. We come to verse 16. It says, I say it again. Let no one think me a fool. Let's receive me as a fool that I also may boast a little. You want to hear a fool's argument, so here it comes. And he specifically wants to separate the Lord from this activity. And because of his statement in verse 17, many have tried to say that this portion, this whole portion of 2 Corinthians, this last bit that some say is a different letter even than the prior letter, um, doesn't belong in our scriptures, is because Paul himself identifies it as not of the Lord. But he's trying to make us understand that he does not view what he's doing as something that, the, that honors God. It is not something that... Uh, spiritually alive and vibrant church would ever demand. But because of the nature of the Corinthians, he's going to engage in it. But he is not going to drag the Lord in with it along his way. That is, he's not going to say, well, the Lord... And by the way, we find ourselves saying it frequently. The Lord wants. God told me. I hear that so frequently that I have gotten to the point now that I interrupt conversations. I did it yesterday. When someone says, God has this for you, or that, or God, uh, nope. You don't have permission to speak on God's behalf, especially when you're contradicting the Scriptures in doing so. And I will interrupt you. He's saying, I'm not going to engage in this as something that the Lord has directed, but rather as a response to where you're at. And so here goes. You want to fleshly boast... Here it is. And he goes and talks about the fact he's a Hebrew, an Israelite, an Abraham, that he's also ministered for Christ, and now he's going to get very fundamental about it. Let's talk about physically what the demands of the ministry have been on Paul. And let's just compare. Let's do some comparison charts here. Let's, and, and I'll lay out my qualifications in the physical realm. Now remember, the Corinthians were looking for eloquent, well-dressed slickers. Guys that you would be proud to introduce to society. You know, the type, well-groomed, tall, dark, handsome, um, you know, ranchers. They just have an aura of success around them. Paul says, here's what I'm going to glory in. And he begins a list that is shocking. He talks about labor, getting beaten, getting imprisoned, even facing death itself, five times receiving 39 stripes. 
that was to be at the hands of the Jews or the Roman sympathizers. Beaten with rods, which would be more of a Roman thing than the Jewish thing. Once he was stoned, we have a record of that in Acts. Three times shipwrecked. We know of one for sure, but Paul says three times it happened, including the idea that he spent 24 hours in the ocean, Mediterranean Sea. Lost a lot of sleep. He was hungry and thirsty many times. Had to fast. He was cold. He was, had nakedness. He had all those things. And so he lists them all off here. And Paul says, listen, if there's going to be something to glory in, here's my resume. And the resume isn't my accomplishments, but my sufferings. It's not my success from the world's point of view, but what is success in, in God's eyes is that you, you, this man will serve him no matter what. But Paul says, even all of that list that I just gave you, those aren't the real burden. Those aren't the real pains. Those aren't the real sufferings. Those are not really the things that, that I think are the highest level of concern to me. These are not the areas of my life that I have suffered the most in. And we look at that list and go, how much worse is it going to get? He says there's one thing that in terms of pain and suffering surmounts this whole list. And this is um, profound. Verse 28 says, Beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, this daily weight, is my deep concern for all the churches. The real weight that he's carrying is not the fact that he's got a limp from being stoned or has bad eyesight or has bruises and scars all over his body. Not that he is a little underweight because of fasting and hunger and all the things that, have, uh, that he has encountered. It's not because of the damage that's been done to his physical body at the hands of both the Gentiles and the Jews. But that daily, he is deeply concerned about the churches. That on a day-to-day -day basis, he is concerned that they are Listening to men that have no reputation, who glory in the fact that they've never suffered for Jesus. They glory in their wealth and in their quote-unquote success, and, and um, that's where they glory. And this is no different anywhere today. I go to a pastor's fellowship, I don't know of any of them saying, Man, we got, I got beat up. Uh, you know, I got trashed by the media. I got people in my church attacking me. None of that. You know, we don't glory in that. 
Because we still think like the Corinthians. That the thing to, to exalt and to talk about is what the world calls success. And Paul says, listen, my greatest concern, the heaviest weight, the deepest suffering is my concern over all the churches. What is going on? You started well. Who hindered you? He asked the Galatians. And so Paul isn't worried about one church in Corinth. We have all these letters in our Bible. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, even Romans to a degree, and he wasn't even there yet. Colossians, Thessalonians. I mean, he's concerned about these churches. That they are wolves coming in among them that are devouring them and they are not sounding the alarm and, and his concern isn't about his own reputation fundamentally here. His concern is if these guys come in and they're tolerated and their voice is being given an audience by your ears and you think it's wise to do that, then he's deeply concerned because he knows where it's going to take you. It's going to take you right into error. It's going to take you right into sin. It will not take you closer to God. It will not strengthen and build you up in the faith that you can endure whatever comes. And for Paul, on a daily basis, his prayers were filled and his concerns were filled, his thoughts were filled with the circumstances of the church, and he had given them over to God, certainly, but he recognized as a faithful minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he had a responsibility toward them. To share with them the truth, to call them to it, and when they walked away from it, to declare it. To admonish them, to warn them. And to call them names. He did that a lot. I know, if I start calling people names, you guys get really upset at me. But Paul wasn't against that. Um, and from what I can remember, Jesus wasn't either. When confronted with those kind of guys, the scribes and the Pharisees, you whitewashed sepulchers. Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? We have become so civilized That the best we can ever do is don't even just talk in general terms about people that are other people that must be doing error. We can't even name them, let alone call them what they are. And Paul says, yeah, I have a deep concern for all the churches. And I'll go back and suffer all those things again if it would just establish you all in your faith so that you're not tolerating this kind of people coming in among you and spouting off their error as if they had authority. If they think they have authority, then let them join me. Be transparent. Ignore the finances. Prepare to suffer. And instead of spouting off your strengths, boast in your infirmities. 
Where are you weak? I'm pretty sure that God says that where you are weak, He can be strong. That His strength is perfected in our weaknesses. And Paul lists them off before them and said, listen, if you're going to make me boast, in verse 30, if you're going to force the issue, then I will do it. But I'm not going to boast in the things they boast about because that's error. And you're impressed by their boasting. Because they throw certain names around that they have hobnobbed with, that they, that they throw around uh, uh, their past successes in terms of, in human terms. I won't boast like that. But I will boast ultimately in the fact that from the day the first days of my faith. I think it's great that Paul has taken us to the end and now he's going to conclude this section. He's not really done. We're going to get into chapter 12 next week. He's concluded this by taking us to the very beginning. His last example is that this isn't something I developed late in my ministry just recently. Um, since I've been to Corinth. This stuff didn't just happen since I've been to Corinth. This stuff goes all the way back to the first city I walked into. Where the scales dropped from my eyes as Ananias laid hands on me and the Spirit of God filled me in Damascus and I spoke everywhere of the Gospel and immediately the response was, we must destroy this man. They sought to arrest me. They sought to destroy me. And so from day one, I understood that this was my future. And not for a year, not for three years, but for decades, Paul served God with this resume. I'm called by God, not by men. I'm trained in the knowledge of God. I will be transparent. I've given up my life, so giving up a fortune is nothing. I will throw everything that I am into the ministry. All that I am, all that I possess, is for His work. And I will gladly suffer if it means that others will receive life. I will follow the pattern of my Savior. And I will accept my weaknesses and my infirmities as opportunities for God to be blessed forever in my ministry. What a radical difference to what we are seeing today in clergy. Where do I stand? I would like to think that I stand with Paul in verse 29 and 30. 
that when such things come upon the church and cause Christians to stumble in their faith, that it produces a fire within them. Paul says, I, who is made to stumble, I do not burn with indignation. He says, I'm going to be fiercely angry over those who cause brethren to stumble into sin or error. And when the church stops doing that, when our best pastors refuse to take such a stand, they introduce into the church the idea of the broadness of Christ and that we tolerate and, and put up with all of this garbage, then the church has lost its faith. Paul knows what's on the line. And so he's willing to do some foolish things and say some ridiculous things they should never have had to say. He's never had to defend, he should never have had to have defended himself in this fashion. And yet, it was incumbent upon him to do so because of the nature of the absolute foolishness of the Corinthians who thought they were wise in thinking that the kingdom of God is broad and wide and easy. And the Bible says it's narrow and hard and few there be that find it. We want to get back to the one and only Jesus. We want to get to the true Holy Spirit. We want to preach the real gospel of Jesus Christ. And that will necessarily require us to do some soul-searching and limitation and call error, error, and not look for little bits of truth in the midst of error. That's what we're about. We are tolerating the wrong kind of preaching. If we have to search through a whole sermon to find one or two truths to, that I can cling to, our sermon should be full of truth, derived from God's Word. When they fail to be so, we need to not put up with it. We should have the same indignation, the same anger that Paul had when others were caused to stumble by the error of the false teachers. This should be our concern. And it should be a weight that we sense every day. That every day I have a responsibility to make sure that what comes into my ears and eyes, into my mind, is truth. When it has the name of Jesus attached to it. You're responsible. Like the Corinthians were. And yes, there's a heavier responsibility on leadership that I feel very keenly but we can't miss the call of God to the Corinthians. Let's leave the world's wisdom and search rather for God's. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us.
for your goodness and mercy toward us. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. What a powerful message of your sacrifice, of your love for us, of your suffering. Lord, we know that in this age, as in all the ages, there have been those who have sought to use and abuse your message for their own ends. And the church has not always been wise in recognizing. Though you've given us your word and your spirit within us, Lord, we have foolishly gone after the wisdom of men. And measured success as she would. As the world would. And Lord, forgive us of this. Lord, may we find strength and courage in your truth. That we might be willing to join Paul in his testimony. And Lord, we know really we can't. We can't begin to compare to what he endured for your name's sake. For our faith is very easy. Lord, we take responsibility for that. It simply means that we have done little to challenge our world with your truth. They should be angry with us as they hate you. They should seek to destroy us as they sought to destroy you. So Lord, give us the courage, the boldness, to follow our Savior as Paul did his. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.